Let's get into the uh, Word of God here this morning. You're going to be in John chapter 7. This Way of Jesus series um, that we're talking about, this came from, if you're new today, this come from kind of a years-long observation of me looking at, uh, and, and actually our staff, we've been kind of on a journey of, of looking at what, what were some of the things Jesus did. I'm not talking about, you know, what would Jesus do. I'm talking about what, what, did, what did Jesus do. And I, I, I think there's some lifestyle habits that are pretty, pretty profound that are consistent in the life of Jesus. So I'm going to go over them with you. Here's the six that, that we have discovered. And these aren't esoteric. They're not some new rhythm. No, they, these are there. You, you could have found them yourself. It's not magic. But we, we found that one of Jesus, obviously the, the thing that Jesus did, he put the kingdom first. Jesus always put the kingdom first. Jesus talked about the church very little. Very little did he talk about the church. But he talked about the kingdom all the time, right? Uh, Jesus was always truthful. I, I, I spoke about that a couple of weeks ago on the rich young ruler. Jesus, Jesus was candid. He just was. He, Jesus uh, practiced God's presence. I, I don't know if, you, if, you, if you're interested in, in what it means to hear from God more, if you want to understand the, the walking presence of God and walking with God. But a couple of weeks ago, the, a sermon by that title I preached, and um, I, I think it's super important for you. If you want to know what it means to abide in Christ and walk with God, not just pray to him in the morning and then go live out your day, but actually walk with God throughout the day and throughout your, your story, that practicing God's presence is something that Jesus was intentional about. Engage your neighbor. Jesus talked to us a lot about what it means to go after people that were spiritually abandoned. He even said it. Jesus said it over and over and over again that, that, that he came to those far from God. And so that's an important part of his rhythms. Find a tribe. Jesus had a calling and he spent it with a small group of people. And today we're going to talk about living free. Jesus, one of the things that I noticed, you saw in that, that sermon video that we just played a minute ago, that Jesus was always st setting people free spiritually or sometimes physically and sometimes both. But Jesus pursued freedom. He, he gave us freedom. And so today we're going to talk about what does that actually mean. So here, here is how this sermon series works. We're taking these six principles and I'm going to show you examples. So today is an example. There's not just one passage where Jesus lived in spiritual freedom. There's many. And so today, I'm going to, and throughout this whole sermon series, it'll run all the way into the summer, we're going to show all kinds of different uh, practical examples of how Jesus lived out these patterns. And today, it, this is no different. This is a place where he, he lived to a different tune of a different drum. And so I'm going to talk to you today about what I'm going to call decidedly different, okay? Decidedly different. And that's what I'm, if you're, if you're, if you're a note taker and a lot of you, clear of you are, are those kind of people, we're going to talk about what it means to be decidedly different. Man, I, I'm going to tell you something, man. You want to talk about a passage of scripture that is pertinent to pop culture today in, in light of social media and branding and all of those things, I'm telling you, this is about as practical as it gets. So here we go. Uh, John chapter 7, verse 1. It says um, that after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, and he, he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. I'm going to tell you what that is in just a minute. And therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here, go into Judea, 
so that your disciples also may see your works, which you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. And Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here. But your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. So go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet come. And having said these things to them, <clears throat> he stayed in Galilee. A lot going on right, <clears throat> right there. So let me tell you what's, let me give you a little context of this, okay? Th th this, this feast of booze or this feast of tabernacles, um, <clears throat> it was an important Jewish tradition. And here's what it was intended to do. Uh, and then this is kind of what it became. But what it was intended to do was it was, it was a, a religious holiday where everybody would go and set up tents and booths, okay? And the, the idea was that it would cause you, you know how you have Christmas traditions? Like uh, one of the Christmas traditions that we have at our home is um, for, you know, many, 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 many years, I spoke all across the country at, at men's conferences and events. And so, and I also traveled quite a bit filming projects. And so I would always, somehow Michelle and I had this crazy idea. I don't know where, where but we, it came out one day that we were, I was going to get a Christmas ornament from every place I'd ever been, and I'd try to think about that. So I've got some pretty crazy Christmas ornaments. Like I've got a pair of snowshoes from the Arctic Circle uh, that, that is a town of population of seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was 200 miles into the Arctic Circle and 100 miles past the North Pole. And, and, and there was a little place that had a gas pump. When I say a gas pump, it was a pipe out of the ground with a handle. Not the kind of handle you use, like one of those, you just open it. So it was really, really strange. But there were seven people that lived there year round. But I think the, the other seven had died, uh, you know. And so, uh, and so it was one of those things where I got snowshoes, right? And then uh, I also have this one that I got in a cave in Moldova where two monks live. Um, you, ha you have to go in a cave and crawl into it, and they sold Christmas ornaments. I'm like, this is the best ever. Like, nobody's going to have this ornament, right? I mean, nobody. You cannot get these. But one of the traditions that we have that I love at Christmas is, is that all of those ornaments make us remember the story, right? Oh, I remember where I was. When, or when one of the boys you know, would do their turkey hand or something, you know, and all that. You know, you're hanging that stuff, and it's awesome. Well, well, um, the, the Feast of Booze was kind of supposed to be that. It was kind of meant to make them, oh, yeah, go back and tell the story of how our people, oh, my gosh, we were in prison because we had sinned against God. And then, and then the Lord sent us this man named Moses. And, and, and I know you all weren't alive, boys and girls, but let me just tell you uh, this is what happened because my grandfather used to tell me about it. And, and, and he would tell me about how Moses led him out of the, of the desert and, 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 and how God, they didn't have any food. And then God provided manna and, and he led them by fire at night where they could see and cloud by day. And, and they would tell the story. And the whole point of having a tent was to remember that God was always on the move, that God was going to provide for them. They were a nomadic people. And so that was the idea behind Feast of Booze. Well, that was the intent, but this is, this is Jason's interpretation. And then nobody, I've never seen a commentator say this, so this is, you know, my thoughts at this point are just as good as anybody else's. And, and I think it, it, it started out as that. 
But let me tell you what it looks like it was becoming. I think it was becoming a networking event. I think it was becoming, I'm not saying entirely, and I understand you got to give me some liberty right here. But if you look at the context of what these people were saying, they were saying this, hey, there's this really big religious conference coming up, and everybody who's anybody is going to be there. And this is the perfect place that if you are who you say you are, you need to go work some miracles. You need to go work some miracles. You need to go prove who you are. You need, you need to step into that because, listen, that all the famous prophets are going to be there. The publishers are going to be there. You know, radio stations, TV shows, all the famous, you know, Jewish authors, theologians. If you would go turn some water into wine, I'm telling you, they're going to love you. That's what they were saying, right? That's what was happening. And Jesus didn't take the bait. And by the way, I don't think conferences are bad. Don't, don't go out of here and quote me. You know, I didn't say that. I'm just saying there was a lot of peer pressure right in this moment. So that's the context. In fact, I love how the New Living Translation says it in verse 3. Look, I put it on the screen for you. They were, this is kind of a more, more practical version as far as just like equivalence. Leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world, right? So Jesus didn't take the bait. Jesus lived free from something. You know, Galatians 5.1 tells us this. It is, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Jesus set us free. In fact, it's kind of ironic in, in Galatians. The book of Galatians is, is written to a church that was slipping back into a lot of human performance. A whole lot of human performance. So, so, so Jesus set us free. So in this particular case, what does it mean to be decidedly different? What, what does it mean when, if Jesus is decidedly different, what is he free from? What, what was he free from as a general rule, right? I'll tell you what the yoke is here. You just read the yoke of slavery for Galatians was human performance. i tell you what I, I think in this particular passage, Jesus is getting freedom from. And that's what I would call performance pressure. Performance pressure, actually, I'm going to even add a qualifier to that. Finding your worth through what you do, not through who you are. Do you see the difference? Finding your worth through what you do instead of who you are. And I can't think of a more relevant and, and, and timely passage for us in 2023, especially in today's culture and especially even in Williamson County, where many of you have very great jobs. This is a high-performance culture. And I can't think of a more soul-bending word for us to look at today. Because if you pursue your worth based on your identity of what you can do and how you can perform, I promise you, I'm right when I tell you how that's going to end. It's going to end in exhaustion, bitterness, and you may gain the whole world, but you will lose your soul in the process. I promise you. So how do we get free from that? 
You know, Jesus' life rhythm was always decidedly different. In fact, his first sermon right out of the gate, what did Jesus say? I love this verse. Look at, look at Matthew 7 on the screen. Jesus said, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. That was the first sermon Jesus ever preached. And if you think about the first sermon, if you think about the Sermon on the Mount, which I've read all kinds of times, I've, I've studied that sermon a lot. And the, the crux of that whole sermon is basically upside down living. Forgive your enemies. Really? Yeah. Pray for those who persecute you. I would rather post about those who persecute me. <laughs> You're saying pray? Yeah. Yeah. Think about, think about how much opposite is in the Sermon on the Mount. Think about how much opposite is in the Sermon on the Mount. It's everywhere. So Jesus is saying, no, his, right out of the gate, his rhythm is different for life. And so, so it was a, an outside way of living. So here's the deal. Here's the question that I want to ask you this morning. We know that Jesus lived free from performance pressure to measure his identity by it. He was getting all kinds of pressure from his brothers, from his friends, to go prove himself. Now, imagine what would have happened had he taken the bait. Can you imagine? But he said, no, I don't need to do that. So, so we know that he, he chose to do this, right? He, he, he chose to do that. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. I don't need to do that. But he, here's the big question I'm asking. How? How did he do it? How did... I mean, what... What did he put onto the playing field? What did, he, what did he inject into the algorithm to change it? How did he do it, right? I'm going to tell you how he did it. It's really simple. Jesus knew who owned his future. He knew who owned his future. You know how I know that? When Jesus taught us to pray, the model prayer is not meant for vain repetition. It's not... The model prayer was a model of how to pray. And what is the first thing Jesus said in the model prayer? Our Father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, that's a statement of alignment. In heaven, it's a statement of solidarity. Jesus knew who owned him. And friend, when you know who owns you, you're not up for sale. You're not up for sale. You're just not. He knew who owned his future. You've heard me say this in many different ways, and I've probably said it like this before, and you've also probably forgotten it, so I'm going to tell you again. Listen to me, Christian friend. If you want to step aside from performance pressure, if you want to, st if you want to bypass the game of measuring your worth by what you can do and how much square footage you own and how many zeros are at the end of your 401k. If you want to measure your worth against climbing a ladder, none of that is bad. Don't hear me. It is not bad. But if you will let it, the world will do exactly what it was trying to do to Jesus. Go prove yourself. Go prove yourself. Go prove yourself. And if you take the bait, I'm going to tell you, it's going to wreck you. And here's how you get around it right? You have to reconcile, listen to me now, reconcile the sovereignty of God over your life. 
What do you mean by reconcile? You know a bank account, right? You reconcile checkbook? You ever done that? Taught your kids to do it, right? I never was really good at it. Then software came along, and I did exactly what any man of God should do. I let my wife do it, uh, you know, right? But what is reconciliation? It is, it is bringing two things together to balance it out and make it right. If you will understand who owns your future, and if you will come to grips with the fact that, that God owns who you are because he set you free in Christ, he came out of the grave, he put a new spirit in you, you could not be any more loved than you possibly are, you could not be any more accepted than you possibly are in Christ, you don't need to prove yourself to anybody. Anybody. You don't. You don't. And, and so when you have a sovereign outlook that your life is owned by a creator, you know what's interesting to me? Notice something Jesus says. <laughs> look, look, look at what he says in, in verse 7, man. He says, the world can't hate you. That is messianic smack talk. I don't know that they really got it. He's saying, you know why the world can't hate you? Because the world owns you. They're not going to hate their own. It's a very kind way of saying, you're sons of the devil. You have a devil's agenda. The world can't hate you. Verse 7, but it hates me, right? It does hate me because I testify of it. So you go on, on your way and you go up there. See, they, do you understand the performance pressure he's being put under right there? They're asking him to go perform miracles and they don't even believe in him. They, they, didn't, even, they didn't even believe. So had he taken the bait, now he's on the hamster wheel of pleasing people that don't even like him. You, you get that? See how dangerous that is? He's on the hamster wheel of performing for people that don't even have his best interest in mind. In fact, they don't even have his standards. They don't hold his worldview. Think about the gravity of that. Looks, listen, you know why I tell you that you, if you want to overcome this whole identity, measuring your identity by how you can perform and what you can provide and all that you can do, you know why this is such a big deal? If you do not reconcile the sovereignty of God over your life, you will live with nothing but impulse. Nothing but impulse. You will jump from good idea to good idea. You will jump to the, the person with the loudest voice. You will conform to everybody else's way. Remember a parent one time was talking about how their, their kid wasn't playing sports, you know, at the age of like five or six. And they're like, you know, we really got to get them in. They're going to be behind. I'm like, behind? Behind what? A three-year-old? Well, they're not playing sports. I'm, they're they're going to be behind. I'm like, they're just out of diapers, man. You got them in travel ball at four? I didn't even, I didn't yell at them. But in my mind, I was. I was like, what, what are we becoming? This fear. Ah, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? You know, 
You're gonna live in impulse. What happens? What happens if I don't get that job? What happens if I don't get that job? I gotta do everything I can. I gotta stay later, I gotta stay later, or work harder, work harder. Nothing, hard, nothing wrong with hard work. But I'm telling you, friends, that this is where our society lives and it is exhausting. What about this? What about, what about all of you that are in your 20s? Some of you that are students. What are you willing to give up to get somebody to love you? What are you willing to give up? Because I can tell you this, ladies. Any man that will take your virginity doesn't love you at all. He's a thief. And I'll tell you something other, dudes. Any woman that will take your virginity to say we'll be closer, she's a thief too. You don't have to take the bait. But you will take the bait. If you don't know who you are in Christ, see, Jesus knew who owned him. He knew who owned him. He knew who owned him. So if you want to reconcile the sovereignty of God in your life, friends, you can live free. You can live free. This is a practical example of how Jesus did. He didn't take the bait. So if you're going to do this, what, do you, what can you expect? That's another question I got for you this morning. What can I expect? If I'm going to live this way, and if I'm going to live free from the pressures of life. And by the way, I want to say this while you're writing that down. Life's full of pressure. And that's just part of life. We know that. I'm not saying pressure's bad. I'm just saying it's always going to be around. But I'm learning at the age of 50 that if I'm going to, if I'm going to find pressure, then my pressure is going to be placed into pressing more into being a man of God. And that may sound very preacherly, but I actually do mean it. I want to be, I want to be, you know what I want to be remembered by? Not what I did. Let me tell you something. I'm, I'm not saying this to be funny. I'm not saying this to sound falsely humble. There are thousands of better preachers than me. I listen to them. You know when you're bested. There are great orators there are, there are better pastors. I don't measure myself by that. Because you know what? There's better pastors than them too. There's better preachers than them too. There's always going to be somebody better at your job than you are. There's always going to be somebody smarter at academics than you are, students. There's always going to be somebody that's better in the boardroom than you are. Better in the marketing strategy than you are. Better in anything than you are. Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. You stay in line with the word of God and your identity in Christ because there's only one you. God put you where you are, not somebody else. He put you where you are. And you find freedom in that. But if you do choose to not take the bait, what can you expect? Well, I can tell you what you can expect. You can expect to be misunderstood. If you're going to hold the line. Jesus wasn't understood right here. You notice what, you know one thing I do love on, on a side note about what he said? If you notice this in, in verse 7 and 8, verse 8, he says, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go. You know what he's saying right there, don't you? He didn't say, I'm never going to go. He's saying, I'm not going to go because you told me to go. I love that. 
Oh, y'all can go. In fact, if you read on, he did go. But you know what he's saying? I'm going to go when I'm good and ready, when God tells me to go, but not because you told me to go. And that's a maverick Messiah, and I love that. You're going to be misunderstood if you choose to hold the line for the word of God. You're going to be misunderstood, and you may even be maligned. But I, I want to do something this morning. We're going to be misunderstood as a church. We're going to be misunderstood as believers. If we choose to hold to the word of God and the standards of God, but that's okay. And you know what? You may be alone at times. I tell my boys all the time, if you're going to follow God and you're going to stand on the principles of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, you need to full on get ready to stand by yourself more often than not, even among your Christian peers. But I'll tell you the same thing I tell them. You will not be alone. And I mean that to all of you. You know why? Because I'll be standing right beside you. And there'll be two of us if there's no more. Because let me tell you something, friends. On the day you die, none of your TikTok followers are going to execute your judgment. On the day you die, none of your Instagram people or none of your Facebook friends are going to be there executing whether or not you lived accordingly. No celebrity, no government, no mayor, no governor, no president, no famous person. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to live for an audience of one. I am. And that doesn't make me special. It doesn't make me a hero. It just makes me resolved. I am. So you've got a promise, though, and I want you to turn in your Bible to Psalm chapter 1. It's something I've committed to memory. I've given it to my, my sons. They've committed it to memory. And there's a promise here that we're going to go back to the shepherd David. And I want, I want you to look at it with me for a minute. What can you expect? You can expect people not to understand, but let's look at a promise straight from the word of God together. Psalm chapter 1, right in the middle of your Bible, right after Job, right before Proverbs. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. You know what I love about the Psalm 1 person? That word man is, is ha'adam. It's, it's humankind, man, woman. You know what I love about the Psalm, Psalm 1 person? In, in, in verse 1, you start to see that they're willing to walk by themselves. They're willing to walk by themselves. In fact, there's a natural progression in the Hebrew right there that you got to kind of, I loved Hebrew. I was way better at it than I was in Greek, and, and I don't understand that to this day. But there's a natural progression there in Psalm chapter 1, and it starts from walking to standing to sitting, right? Seriously, all of you, and none of you are immune to this. I don't care if you're 70 years old. You will, you will become like the people you run with, 
right? So watch this. It says, blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of mockers. Look, do you see what's happening? You start walking with somebody, pretty soon you're going to stand with them, and pretty soon you're going to sit. The implication is they got you. That's, the, that's what's happening right there in the Hebrew, okay? And so I'm telling you, he says he's willing to walk by himself. She's willing to walk by herself. And then look at what they, where their appetite is. Their appetite is, is on the word of God and the promises of God. And then in verse 3, it says that's where the favor comes. They'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that yields forth fruit in its season. And its leaf doesn't wither. And whatever they do prospers. Friends, that's favor. That's favor. And it's favor because they chose to live decidedly different. And I'm going to tell you something at Clearview. We're going to be decidedly different. We may not be decidedly bigger, but we're going to be decidedly different. And we're going to let the chips fall where they may. We're going to live by the streams of water because we love the Word of God. And we abide in the Word of God. And we're going to follow after Jesus. To live free and stay free. You know, it means a lot to us that you would come here today and be a part of who we are. It, it really does matter to us more than you might realize. Sometimes I think we underestimate the power we have to influence people. You know, if you would look around your world, you'd be amazed at how many people would receive what you have to say to them. You could be a digital missionary. You don't have to post everything on Facebook, or we're not asking you to go on your favorite social platform. But I would challenge you to look around your world. I guarantee you might have a friend, even in a different state or another part of the world, something was said today, whether a sermon, a prayer, a song, something was said that could mean a lot to them. Man, send it to them. You'd be amazed at how much of a difference that could make.